Welcome back to our series of podcasts exploring key aspects of company law. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Suzanne Carney of Counsel in the Corporate and M&A Department at Arthur Cox. I'm Ashlyn Carey, Professional Support Lawyer in the Corporate and M&A Department in Arthur Cox. And I'm Tom Courtney, Partner in Arthur Cox. Today, as part of our Company Law Back to Basics series, we are focusing on substantial property transactions between companies, their directors and persons connected with them. Tom, the provisions found in sections 238 and 239 of the Companies Act 2014 are often referred to together by practitioners. But in fact, these provisions govern two distinct types of transaction. Yes, Suzanne, that's very true. While the same transaction may sometimes involve analysis of both section 238 as a substantial property transaction and section 239 as a transaction with the director or other connected person, the two provisions are not otherwise linked in any way. What the provisions do have in common is that they both relate to transactions between companies and their directors, directors of their holding company, if any, and persons connected with those directors. What made these provisions unique in the 1990s following their introduction in the Companies Act 1990 was that they bring the duty to avoid conflicts of interest to a new and higher level. Following the lead set by the UK in the 1980s, our Oireachtas effectively said it did not trust directors to avoid conflicts of interest, where they were buying from or selling assets to their companies, or where the company was making loans or leases to them or providing guarantees or security for their borrowings. These provisions restrict directors from entering into such transactions or arrangements by effectively unpicking the usual delegated authority model in favour of directors and creating a statutory reserve power for members to sanction such transactions or arrangements unless certain other criteria are met. These provisions actually, I remember, caused quite a stir in the 1990s and some of the first articles I had published in legal journals concerned sections 29 and 31 of the Companies Act 1990, which were the predecessors to section 238 and 239. Thanks, Tom. And it's fantastic to get the benefit of your insight on these provisions. As this is a complex topic, we've split our discussion over two episodes. Today, we're going to focus on substantial property transactions under Section 238. And in our next episode, we will look at transactions with directors under Section 239. But first, as you mentioned, Tom, something both provisions have in common is that they apply not only to directors, but also to connected persons. The concept of persons connected with directors can sometimes cause complexity. So perhaps it's worthwhile taking this concept back to basics for a few minutes. The concept of connected person was introduced in the 1990s. While directors have long been obliged to avoid conflicts of interest between their duties and their other interests, there was no presumption at common law or inequity that benefits to specified persons were to be considered as in a director's interests. Section 220 of the Companies Act 2014 defines connected persons and in so doing deems transactions and arrangements of benefit to them to be transactions and arrangements of benefit to the director with whom they are connected. The important point to note at the outset is that sections 238 and 239 are targeted at directors and at persons connected to them. As a shorthand, let's refer to the subjects of these provisions as relevant persons. 
Three categories of relevant person can be identified. The first is the most straightforward, and that's the directors of a company, and if it has a holding company, the directors of its holding company. In addition to formally appointed directors, that is the directors whose details you would expect to see registered with a CRO, this also extends to any de facto directors and shadow directors, both of the company itself and of its holding company, if any. The second category of relevant persons comprises natural persons who are connected with directors. The definition of connected person is set out in section 220 of the Companies Act 2014 and provides that a person connected with a director of a company or its holding company includes the spouse, civil partner, parent, brother, sister or child of the director. A child includes a child of the director's civil partner who is ordinarily resident with the director and their civil partner. It is also important to note that the spouses, civil partners, parents, brothers, sisters and children of shadow directors and de facto directors are also persons connected with directors of the company and of its holding company. The third category of relevant person are bodies corporate which are connected persons with directors of a company or its holding company. It is significant here that the term body corporate is used and not merely company since, as you'll be aware, the word company when used in the Companies Act 2014 only means an Irish company. Body corporate, on the other hand, is more generic and refers to any legal entity that has a separate existence from its members. Sure, it includes companies registered under the Companies Act, but it also includes industrial and provident societies, and perhaps most significantly, it includes foreign companies. The consequence is that an Irish company will be restricted in entering into a transaction or arrangement of a kind envisaged by section 238 or 239, which is in favour of a foreign company or other body that is connected with the director of the Irish company or its holding company. The key question in determining whether a body corporate is a person connected with the director is, is it controlled by a director? Control in this context is set out in section 220, subsection 5 of the Act. A director of a company is deemed to control a body corporate if, but only if, that director, whether alone or together with any other director or directors of the company, or any person connected with the director or such other director or directors, are interested in one half or more of the equity share capital of that body, or entitled to exercise or control the exercise of one half or more of the voting power at any general meeting of that body corporate. So in practical terms, to summarise, a body corporate controlled by a director of the relevant company or of its holding company will be a connected person. A body corporate controlled by a body corporate that is itself controlled by a director of the relevant company or its holding company will also be a connected person. Finally, there is a rebuttable presumption that the sole member of a single member company is a person connected with the director of that company. Another significant consequence of the definition of control is that where two directors of a relevant company are equally interested, 50-50, in the shares of a body corporate, that other body will be a person connected with both directors as both directors will be deemed to control it. Yes, and this is something which in practice can arise in a joint venture structure. 
before we leave connected persons, we should note that other persons connected with the director can also include trustees of a trust, where the director or any of their connected persons are the principal beneficiaries. The partner of a director of a company or of its holding company will also be a connected person. Focusing on substantial property transactions under Section 238, Tom, what does this provision regulate? Section 238 regulates transactions in which a relevant person either acquires a non-cash asset of the requisite value from a company or where a company acquires such an asset from a relevant person. Remember, by relevant person, I mean a director of a company, a director of its holding company, or any of the persons connected with such directors as we've already identified. The restriction in Section 238 is a two-way valve where companies either acquire assets or dispose of assets from directors or a person connected with such a director. At the outset, I might just add that one of the greatest hazards of Section 238 is failing to recognise its application, and it really should be a key item on any checklist involving the corporate transfer of assets. There are a couple of aspects to the provision that we might now discuss in further detail for the benefit of our listeners. Firstly, when we refer to non-cash assets, what does this mean and how does it arise in practice? Non-cash asset is defined as any property or interest in property other than cash. And for the purposes of the definition, cash is deemed to include foreign currency. Examples include real property, chattels like paintings, cars and electronic equipment, shares and other choses in action. Any reference to the acquisition of a non-cash asset includes a reference to the creation or extinction of an estate or interest in or a right over any property and also a reference to the discharge of any person's liability other than a liability for a liquidated sum. Most commonly in practice, this provision arises in relation to the interest in real estate. However, it is worth noting that the concept of non-cash asset is broader than just real estate. And Tom, not all transactions involving non-cash assets will fall within scope. That's right, Suzanne. The provision is only concerned with the acquisition or disposal of non-cash assets of the requisite value. In relation to the requisite value, the Act provides for a de minimis of €5,000, and subject to that is where the value of an asset exceeds €65,000, or 10% of the net assets of the company. So irrespective of anything else, all transactions over €65,000 will be of the requisite value, a relatively modest threshold, since it means a car valued at, say, €70,000 cannot be sold to a director by his or her company unless Section 238 is complied with and the members approve the transfer by resolution in general meeting. In relation to determining the relevant assets, particularly in the context of a private company, regard will have to be had to its financial statements where the value of the relevant assets is an issue in a proposed transaction, it may well be prudent to have it certified by the company's statutory auditor. And it should also be noted that where the value of a transaction or arrangement is not capable of being expressed as a specific sum of money, either because the amount of liability arising under the transaction is unascertainable, or for any other reason, it will be deemed to exceed €65,000. Ashling, in addition to transactions falling outside of scope based on the requisite value thresholds, are other transactions exempt from this provision? 
Yes, in addition, the provision does not apply to the intergroup transfer of assets between a holding company and its wholly owned subsidiaries or to the disposal of assets by a receiver. In relation to the transfer of assets on liquidation, it is important to note that while court-appointed liquidators and liquidators in a creditor's voluntary liquidation are not required to comply with Section 238, the provision does not exempt liquidators in a member's voluntary liquidation from disposing of assets to relevant persons. However, where a distribution in specie is made to a member who happens to also be a director, that disposition is exempt since the transfer will be made to the person in his or her capacity as a member and not as a director. So once we have a transaction that falls within scope under Section 238, what is required of the company? A key point to note is that Section 238 is designed to protect the members of the company rather than the creditors of a company. Section 238 achieves its goal by requiring the members of a company to approve, by means of an ordinary resolution, a substantial property transaction entered into between a company and any of the relevant persons. Section 238 provides a statutory safeguard against directors abusing their position in corporate transactions involving themselves or persons connected with them. From a timing perspective, Section 238 provides that this ordinary resolution must be passed in advance of the arrangement being entered into. And while Section 238 refers to the resolution being passed in general meeting, the resolution can also be passed as a written resolution without holding a general meeting. Tom, in many private companies, the directors and members may in fact be the same people. Does this cause any difficulty in relation to the passing of the member's resolution approving the transaction? Uh, No, it does not, Suzanne. Where the members and directors are one and the same persons, as is frequently the case in many private companies, there will be no difficulty in complying with Section 238, which in such cases is no more than a paper exercise. The real issue is, as I mentioned earlier, whether the companies realise that Section 238 applies to the transaction. While the Irish courts have on a number of occasions applied the estoppel principle in Buchanan and McVeigh, two transactions where no resolution was formally passed, this should never be relied upon. The old adage that an estoppel is a shield, not a sword, applying in spades here. That's very true, Tom. Hopefully the aspects we discussed today will assist listeners in identifying when the provision might be relevant. Ashton, I think you have come across this in a group company context, where a subsidiary company proposes to enter into an arrangement with a director. Yes, frequently there will be common directors of subsidiary companies and holding companies. Where a subsidiary enters into an arrangement with such a common director, two approving resolutions will be required. In these circumstances, not only must the members of the subsidiary company approve the arrangement, the members of the holding company must also give their approval, if the director is also a director of the holding company. This remains the case notwithstanding that any holding company does not itself actually enter into any arrangement. So, as we noted earlier, Section 238 applies in relation to transactions in respect of non-cash assets. In practice, this is often encountered in relation to transactions or arrangements involving interests in real estate, such as the grant of a lease. Where Section 238 applies in a conveyancing transaction, regard should be had to the Law Society's Conveyancing Committee's practice note. The essence of the recommendation is that a certificate should be included in the purchase deed, showing that the parties are either not connected or that they are connected and that the requisite resolution has been passed by the appropriate company. 
In other arrangements involving non-cash assets other than real property, it's also prudent to insert a suitable certificate into the deed or other instrument which evidences that Section 238 of the Act either does not apply or that it does apply but that it's been complied with. While the failure to comply with Section 238 is not a criminal offence, it does render an unapproved transaction voidable at the instance of the company and exposes the directors involved to personal consequences. However, Section 238 contains a number of savers to an otherwise voidable transaction. Here, Section 238, subsection 3, paragraph C, again demonstrates the purpose behind the section, the safeguarding of members' interests, since the members may retrospectively validate an otherwise voidable arrangement involving a company and its directors and other relevant persons by passing a resolution affirming the arrangement within a reasonable period of time after the date on which the arrangement is entered into. Avoidance is also not permitted in circumstances where restitution of any money or other asset, which is the subject matter of the arrangement or transaction, is no longer possible, or where any rights which were acquired bona fide for value and without actual notice of the contravention by any person who is not a party to the arrangement or transaction will be affected by its avoidance. Thanks, Ashling and Tom. That concludes today's episode in our Back to Basics series. As I mentioned earlier, in our next episode, we will continue this discussion, focusing on transactions with directors and connected persons under Section 239 of the Companies Act. In the meantime, if you have any questions on anything we discussed today, please feel free to contact Tom, Ashling, or me, or your usual Arthur Cox contact. Mm-hmm.